I'm Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the mariner's point of view, port by port. In this series, we discover the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. Coming up on today's episode, there are a lot of firsts. First love, first child, first job. Today, we hear the wild first-time story that involves girls, boats, sudden wealth, Las Vegas, and bags full of cash. But first, let me introduce our host, writer, director, filmmaker, Mr. Scott Dodgson. Thank you, Todd. I hope you're faring well in this COVID-19 environment. Yes, stuck in self-isolation, social distancing. I have a lot of practice. I've been doing it all my life, so... I'm an expert at it by now. (laughs) Well, you know, I kind of look at it also, it's like sailing. If you're going on a long trip, you know, you and your crew are going to be on a boat for 13, 14 days or 20 days or whatever the case may be. And that's it. It's just you guys in the water, the weather, what's new, what's to eat. That's it. That's all we're doing. Wake up. What's to eat? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we might have to change the door frames so we can be rolled out later after yeah. it keeps going. But yeah, well, we'll definitely have the quarantine exercise fad after this is all over for right. to, work, to work off that extra weight. Exactly. Exactly. So this is a unique experience for all of us. We've never gone through this before. I know people had to hunker down during the Blitz in London. People have had to deal with, you know, polio outbreaks. But this is something that a lot of people have never experienced before. This is a unique experience for all of us. And this is, we're in a world of first something that we have not experienced in this country for a long time. It's been at least, you know, over 100 years since the Spanish flu. And it's a time for all of us to reflect on where we are with our life and where we're going. Why don't you tell us how you started down this journey of sailing and becoming a boat captain? I have a story to start out with called uh, my first captain's gig and this is a a true story and it's kind of appropriate for these times with the coronavirus and covid-19 everybody's staying in i'm sure a lot of people are doing a lot of reevaluating of their lives and where they want to go how they want to go Well, I got my first actual paying gig as a captain after I had worked on our boats as a licensed engine wiper. I ended up with a 1500 ton master's license, which I sat for all the tests and everything in New York City. That was was a big day when I finished all the exams for that. And that license served me very well to the point that I ended up uh, eventually with an unlimited tonnage license. I was going through 
a bit of a scramble and uh, I decided that I was going to move to San Diego. And one of the reasons I was going there was because the America's Cup was there. They were preparing for the America's Cup and then it's Dennis Connor's first stab at it. And there were a lot of sailing things going on in San Diego. And I just thought, okay, this has got to be a place that I want to go to and, and become involved with. So there's a couple of different levels that people that want to get into the marine business can find themselves working towards. Uh, being on a race team uh, is very competitive. Uh, it's very disciplined. It, it requires a lot of skill, but it also is, is very myopic. You sail, yes, you race the boat, you fix the boat, you race the boat, you clean the boat, you race the boat, you fix the boat. It's, a, it's just, it's a grind. They're athletes working towards uh, a single goal as a, as a team, and it's quite a large team. Lots of factors, lots of personalities, all the rest of that kind of stuff. And I personally, at the time, after serving in Vietnam, after going to college, after graduating college and getting married, getting divorced. I just wasn't going to be a team player in that regard. So what I was looking to do was to work on boats and I would do everything. I, I learned how to varnish, I learned how to sand. I learned how to fix engines. I learned a lot of things. How do, I worked in a sail loft for a few weeks helping sew sails. Invaluable education. Invaluable education. Um, I worked with a rigger for about two months. Again, an invaluable education. Just, uh, you can't, it's just not stuff you find in books. It's all about experience and doing this kind of stuff. So I felt I had a license, I knew the boats, that I was ready to become a skipper. You know, a paid captain, run a boat for a rich guy, kind of guy. Now, I want everyone to think about, there's kind of a, two epochs going on here. Back in the day, as we say, a captain essentially was the owner's best friend. He drank with him, he kept his secrets, they partied together, they did all sorts of things together. They planned fishing trips, they traveled together. The, the captain, the boat captain, he lived on the boat, he took care of the boat. He was pretty much the owner's best buddy and was treated as such. He got paid well, but it kind of left the kind of guys that ended up being in that environment kind of lost their livers because they had so much drinking to be done and they just kind of basically lost their way as far as that's concerned. Then there was another level of captain in there which is somebody who was a little bit more professional, more of a hired gun. In some cases a very rich person has a, say a management company and that management company runs the boat, runs the boat's finances. So the captain is involved with them more than he is with the owner. Um, he's only involved with the owner when the owner steps on board.
My first gig, I was lucky that I got to meet a guy named Dirk Phillips. I was sitting at the end of the bar in the Konakai Hotel. Now, if anybody's been out to Shelter Island, Konakai is the hotel that's on the very head um, near the Coast Guard Station out there. It was a pretty famous hotel. Jack London had come down from San Francisco and, Monter and Monterey Bay in the snark and had stayed over before going through to Mexico. John Wayne, Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis, Frank Sinatra, they all brought their boats down the Konakai and during the summer it was a big, you know, fun festival place. And a permanent fixture when I was there was Ray Kroc, who was the owner of McDonald's. And he kept his uh, 120-foot fed ship there. And then later, after he passed away, Joan kept the boat and I had the opportunity to be a substitute captain and uh, take the boat up to Anchorage, Alaska and bring it back, which was a great thrill for me. So I sat at the end of the bar and as one does when there's a captain, there's very few agencies per se, you know, for jobs. It's pretty much word of mouth. People see you on the dock, hey, how you doing? What do you do? Who are you? Oh, you're a skipper, that's great. Let's go here, let's go there come race with us. A lot of racing in San Diego. They have their Wednesday Beer Cup races, which I still think are going on. And uh, so you get to meet a lot of different kinds of people, but there's very few boats that require a straight-up, full-time skipper. And I was coming to the realization that San, San Diego really wasn't the place for that. And and really, the after talking to a couple of crews from different parts of the world, I was realizing that the pickings to be a captain were pretty slim on the West Coast. Florida had some room. There are jobs in Florida, but they were telling me it's a kind of a different sort of thing. But the real place was in Europe. That's where you could skipper a boat and, and do really well. And that was pretty exciting. So that became kind of a goal out there for me to think about this. But in the meantime, I was working part-time uh, for Sue and Kimberly. Now, Sue and Kimberly were your classic California surfer girls, blonde hair, flirtatious, sexy, man-eaters, all the stuff, and they were married to two very rich tech guys down in San Diego. And they had a Ferretti, 53. And Ferretti, it was one of the first Ferrettis. And I used to take them out um, twice a week. They would come on, they'd have lunch, would be on the boat, we'd just go out in the ocean, I'd sit up on the bridge, they do what they do, uh, read between the lines, and as I will, in other podcasts go on and say that there's a lot of sex in boating and sex is a big deal in boating. So we're going to, we'll broach that subject from here to there and all the rest of that kind of stuff. (music) 
Sue and Kimberly were great fun. They loved the boat. You know, they helped me undock the boat. They helped me dock the boat. Uh, they did all sorts of things. We had, we had really a blast. And then one day, uh, I was sitting at the end of the bar, and I had, I had cleaned the boat up. And we had been out earlier in the day, and they decided that they were going to stay on the boat and said, ah, oh, we don't need you for the rest of the day. So I went up and sat at the bar. I was waiting for them to come up. And they come up, and they pay me and in cash, which was great, um, 500 bucks, which at the time was really good money for one-day charter. You know, they both give me kisses. They were very sweet. I was like their little puppy. They were about 10, 12 years older than me. And I was their little puppy dog. Off they went. And they said, see you later. Oh, and they said, you could have to the bartender, uh, buy Scott's dinner on our tab. That's And it, just generous, really generous people. And just a lot of fun. So I'm sitting there and it, I'm feeling really good about myself. And this guy comes up with a cowboy hat on, cowboy boots does not fit the quote-unquote yacht club look and he's got this sort of draw and it's a Nevada draw and his name was Dirk Phillips. Well it turned out that he was an average guy you know like about six foot tall graying he was in his 50s big personality loud funny if I was to say that Dirk was a bricklayer, I would actually be giving him too much credit. At best, he was a sloppy block layer because he was a construction guy. And Dirk's story is actually pretty funny. Dirk made a fortune in real estate. Now, he'll be the first to tell you that he wasn't the brightest bulb in the shed. Okay, but he had a lot of money and some friends of his, carpenters, framing carpenters, and if anybody in the construction business knows the kind of guys I'm talking about, you kind of got the picture here. They said, you need yourself a yacht. So he got on his private plane that he just bought and flew down to San Diego and was looking for a yacht to buy because, after all, his buddy said he needed a yacht. He didn't know the first thing about any boat, yacht, whatever. He had never, he'd never even been sailing. He'd never been on a boat, period. He's a land guy, all right? He would get seasick if he wasn't standing on dirt. So he sidles up to me, and he's very impressed. He tells me right off, he says, I'm pretty impressed with you, young man, because... Those are the two most beautiful women I've ever seen in my life. And you had them kissing you and paying you. He said, you must be something special. And we just, I just started to laugh. And I said, well, I work for them, blah, blah, blah. I'm a yacht captain and this, that, other thing. And he goes, you're just the guy I need to talk with. So we started talking about boats. Sail, power. Where do you want to go? What do you want to do with it? All the rest of that kind of stuff. He looked at me and he says, you know, Scott, he says, I want something impressive. He says, but I'm not sure about a powerboat. He says, they, they use a lot of gas. I said, well, most of them use diesel. And I said, besides, oh, he says, just like a truck. 
But my friend said I should get something like the Cadillac of boats. What is that? Well, I had heard this term, the Cadillac of boats, just um, a few months earlier. And Hinkley, out of Maine, were building boats and they had this campaign. They were calling them the Cadillac of yachts. So we started to laugh about that. And he said, well, let's go buy us one. And right there, he shook my hand. He said, you're my captain. He said, let's go buy us one. We'll do this. Where we got to go for it? This, that, another thing. Let's arrange it. Let's go on with it. And then he bought me dinner. And from that time on, for the rest of his life, for almost 20 years more, Dirk Phillips was one of my best friends and most interesting human beings to be around. Now, how he made his money is another story. Dirk is a dreamer. And his wife, God bless her soul, was maybe one of the evilest and meanest people that I've ever met in my life. And boy, did she not like me. I never even said hello to her, and she was yelling at me for something. And I have no, to this day, I have no idea. Dirk decided to buy 1,500 acres, I think it was, of Nevada desert outside of Las Vegas for a dollar an acre. He saw the ad in the back of a comic book. Comic book was his literature of choice. So he went and he bought $1,500 worth of government land. Now, he was a block and bricklayer. He had a pickup truck. He towed a mixer. He had a dog that was so mean that he had to use quarter-inch chain to keep him pegged to a outside of the house and I mean even the coyotes wouldn't bother him that's how mean this dog was he bought this land she was infuriated that he bought this land and he had this dream to build one day to build single-family ranch style homes out in the desert now where this land was there was no water there was no electricity there was no hope of water and there was no hope of electricity it was just land in the middle of nowhere. But Dirk thought this was something. So anyway, he ended up building one single family home, ranch home, and put his office in the garage. And we all know what this house looks right. It's a three bedroom, two bath, garage, one floor, and nothing but dirt and prairie all the way around it. Dirk is in the garage one day, and he's sitting at his desk, which I might add was plywood up on a couple of horses, and he was, he was sitting there, and this guy drives up in a brand new Cadillac and gets out, looks around. He's got a big sign in the front yard, single family homes, one acre, two acre single family homes, new development. So the guy walks on up the driveway. The dog almost kills him. Finally, they get the guy in the garage, and he says, well, what are you building out here? 
And Dirk, to his credit, and to his genius, reached back behind his desk and found a copy of Architectural Digest that happened to come in the mail through no recourse of his or his wife's. And there it was. And he opened up the Architectural Digest, flopped it on the desk, and said, here, we're building these. The guy took a look at it, nodded, yes. He says, so how's this work? I'd like to get me one. So Dirk had to stop for a second because he didn't know what he just sold. So he picks up the magazine, turns around, looks at it, and what it was was the 15,000 square foot customized home that the Kresge, you know, the five and dime fortune, had built in Colorado, okay? And it was, it was like a pagoda, Japanese, all kinds of crazy stuff. And it was one of the most amazing homes ever built. And the guy said, okay, I'll take that. And Dirk, being a bricklayer, block layer, said, well, we take a third down the start, a third when we're half finished, and a third when we're done. The guy says, fine. He says, we take a check or do we need to go to the bank and get cash? Now, you have to understand that Las Vegas, the bank in Las Vegas, Las Vegas proper is four and a half hours driving over dirt roads and mountains to get to, to a road that'll take you to Las Vegas. So Dirk says, cash would be good. And the guy said, okay, good, hop on in, let's go. He says, maybe we could take a look at the land and could see where I want to put my house. From then on, Dirk just made everything up. He went to Vegas, came back. He estimated the price of the house was $10 million. He had three and a quarter million dollars in cash in a suitcase in the single family home with the nastiest dog in the world and a wife that was about ready to take his head off until he opened up that suitcase full of money. And then she broke down in tears and actually had to be hospitalized because she realized her husband was going to go to jail for fraud. But Dirk didn't believe that. Eventually what happened was he managed somehow to get power. He managed somehow to get water. He managed to build two golf courses out there, buy more land, and created a gated community of these 15 to 20,000 square foot gorgeous, beautiful homes that today is a mere 45 minute drive to downtown Las Vegas. He made a fortune, an absolute fortune, but it never changed who he was. And that's a great lesson for, I think, everybody. This guy, money didn't change this guy. So back to buying a boat. So we decided that we're going to get a Hinkley. We're going to get a passport. Beautiful boat, 65 feet. There was one in the yard they were working on, and the guy who was going to buy it um, had some financial problems and wanted to get out of the deal and this, that, and other things. So Dirk and I flew in his private plane up to up to Maine, bought the boat. He went back to doing whatever he did every day. 
And I had the boat shipped by truck across the country to San Diego. We dropped it in the water, got her all fixed up, got her all running. And it was one of the most beautiful boats ever. Now, Dirk paid cash for this boat. Called it My Love. But he had actually never really seen the boat on its own, if you know what I mean. And the day he came to see that boat in the slip, it was all nice and shiny. I had just washed it down. Everything was ready to roll. We were going to go sailing that day. And he was standing there looking at the boat, just looking at it. And a guy walked down the dock and he looked over and he says, that's one of the most beautiful boats I've ever seen in my life. And it was. And Dirk just went from didn't know what to think to beaming with pride. Fantastic. So he gets on the boat. He kept asking me over the years, he says, what's all these black marks on the teak deck? I said, well, those black marks come from the person who wears the cowboy boots on the deck. And he goes, well, I'm not taking my cowboy boots off. I said, it's okay. It's your boat. You can do what you want to do. Right? So we went sailing. Now, we went sailing in the harbor. Back and forth. We would sail like down to Chula Vista and sail back and all the rest. And he just, lo- he just, he just loved sitting there with a beer and stuff. Had little or no interest in actually sailing the boat. He liked to steer the boat occasionally. He could care less about the sails or anything else like that. He just liked to sit on the boat and be moving on the water. Uh, he liked going down uh, downstairs and uh, cracking open a beer and looking around and standing there. And uh, he was just in a little a little place all his own, and he was very happy about it. And then. I said, well, we ought to make a trip. We ought to take, let's go make a trip. And he says, well, we, what do you mean a trip? I, what, I, I don't understand. I said, we'll, we'll leave the harbor. Now, anybody has been to San Diego knows that it's a fairly big harbor, right? And um, you could do plenty of little sailing around in the harbor. But once you get outside, I said, we could, yeah, why don't we just sail down to Mexico? He goes, can you? We can sail down to Mexico? I said, yeah, it's only, it's only 30, 40 miles. We could just sail down there. What do you think? This idea completely boggled him. I've never seen a man more confused about the idea of... He thought the boat was just for in the harbor. He didn't think about the boat being able to go. And I, I explained to him, I said, we can go anywhere in the world we want to go. And he suddenly kind of like bought into the idea. And that's kind of when our adventures really started. He says, well, if we're going to go to Mexico, he says, we got to bring some friends. And I said, sure. (laughs) You can bring friends. Because he almost had the idea that it was my boat too. You know, like he had to ask me permission for the boat. I said, no, no, it's your, your boat. You do what you want to do. So he says, oh, we got to plan this out. we got to plan this out. We're going to plan this out. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. Okay. So he gets all excited about planning and stuff. He says, next weekend, I'm going to fly in. I'm going to bring some friends. I said, okay. So I got, I'm getting the boat prepared. I bought some food and, you know, for the trip and, and 
you know, we're just going to sail down to Mexico, see what we find, maybe anchor out a little bit and have a little party or whatever the case may be. We're going to do much. The next thing I see is these two girls. They're in their 50s. They have bouffants. They are wearing mini skirts with fishnet stockings, tight blouses, lots of cleavage, and super high heels. They were basically hookers from Las Vegas. And of course, the contrast is here's the yacht club, right? The yacht club. You know, everybody's around in their khaki pants and their polos and is, oh my God, do you see what's going on over here? Do you see these girls? Call the police da, 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 and get their number while we're at it. So everybody was agape at these two girls. Joyce and Linda had known Dirk Phillips since high school. And they had been having sex, the two of them with Dirk, since high school. They had known each other that long. And these were the first two friends that he was going to invite on the boat because he just loved being with them. He loved laughing with them. He loved having a good time with them. They were Vegas girls. We get it. No big deal. They're Vegas girls. And they're my buddies from high school. A lot of other things went on. But in any case, we loaded these two girls up. We had them finally take off their high heels. They didn't want to, but we got them take off their high heels. They settled in. We did a lot of drinking. We sailed down to Mexico. Spent three, four days in Mexico and sailed back. And they all hopped on a plane and flew home. Dirk sent me a note, said this was the best trip of his entire life. That was the best, 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 best. It's just best everywhere. He must have written it 50 times. He said, where else can we go? And I said, we could go to Hawaii if you want. They were getting ready to do the Transpac and a couple of other things. And I had kind of entertained the idea about going racing in the Transpac. And there was a couple of other races that were on and, you know, you kind of keep your fingers in a number of different pies. And um, I just sort of bounced that idea. Yeah, I could go to Hawaii. So he calls me from his dentist's office and he says, I'm looking at a travel magazine with Hawaii. He says, it looks like there's a marina in Maui. Can we get there? I said, yes, we can get there quite well. He says, how much is it going to cost to get there? I said, well, it isn't going to cost anything, really. I mean, you know, fuel, all the rest of this kind of stuff. He says, Can, you have to take somebody with you, right? You take somebody with you. I don't want you going sailing all that way by yourself. I said, no, I'll, I'll get some crew. I'll get a couple of people to come with me. And he goes, okay, okay, great. He says, so what I'm going to do, he says, is uh, I'm going to send one of the guys down, one of my workers, I'm going to send him down with a briefcase and then keep it on the boat just in case and use that for expenses. You know, get the boat ready and all the rest of the stuff. And when you get to Maui, how long is it going to take? I said, oh, you know, let's figure it's going to take 
16, 17 days, something like that. Maybe 18 days, maybe longer, maybe less. We'll see. He says, okay, it doesn't matter. He says, I've got some meetings and stuff I have to go to. He says, but when you get there, you call me and I'm flying to Maui. I, he was so enthusiastic about this. So I said, okay, great. So the two crew members that I got were the two women, Sue and Kimberly. I told them, yeah, I'm taking the boat to Hawaii, to Maui. I need crew to go on it. Do you know anybody? I was not asking them to come with me. They Both of them decided, volunteered immediately. And... I'll just, at this point in the story, just tell you that both Sue and Kimberly have been friends of mine for close to 40-some years. We've always had a good time. They've been on the boat on boats with me, sailed many, many miles with me. They eventually did divorce their husbands. They actually married each other uh, when it kind of became more socially appropriate. But both of them are classic uh, Southern California surfer girls. They love sailing. They love being on boats. They love being on the water. We get to Maui, get the boat on the dock in Maui, and it's a great experience for me because I'd never uh, sailed to Hawaii before. It was my first Trans-Pacific type sail, long distance. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. I mean, more than you can believe. I called Dirk. I said, I'm in Maui. He says, I'll be right there. And he said it in such a way, it was as if, you know, he was next door and he was going to just show up. Well, as it turns out, he was next door. He literally was next door. He had taken a hotel room and which could see, he could see the marina and had just seen me come in with the boat. And he was gathering his stuff when I called him. And he was on his way down to the boat. We had so much fun in Hawaii. Now, one of the things he did is I sent Sue and Kimberly back to California because we stayed, we stayed in Hawaii for about three months. And we just sort of sailed around. Uh, he had his wife come down a couple of times. She sort of warmed up to the idea of the boat. She liked the idea of the yacht. But she was, she was more impatient. She was more of a, she'd rather have a big powerboat kind of idea. But not, not Dirk. Dirk liked, Dirk just loved the sailboat for some reason. Just loved it. He loved the way people would look at it. He'd, he'd sit there in his bathing trunks with his cowboy hat on, smoking a cigar in the cockpit, and, 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 just, and just revel. Just revel in the whole concept of it. They they returned back to Vegas. I brought the boat back to San Diego. I picked up two, three people that I brought back with me. He called me again. He was in a meeting. He saw a travel magazine. Can we go to Polynesia? I said, yeah, we could go to Polynesia. How much money do we need? How much money we need was kind of a joke. Because the first suitcase that he brought for the boat, which for boat expenses, was $15,000 in cash. And in 1979, $15,000 in cash could go a long way on, with a boat. I had 
actually up to, I think, closer to a quarter million dollars in cash on the boat at one point. And I eventually had to tell Dirk that we really wasn't a good idea to have that much cash on the boat. And we couldn't buy a safe or put a safe anywhere in the boat to, to um, hold that much cash in the first place. So with Dirk, I sailed to Polynesia. Great trip, beautiful sail. He loved the whole thing. He sailed the islands with me in Polynesia. Uh, we went on quite a few long four, five, six day island hops. We sailed, came back, sailed from San Diego again. This time, the next, the third trip, we sailed all the way, all the way to Sydney, Australia. Turned around, came all the way back. That trip took us basically a year. We pretty much covered almost the entire South Pacific. We had even entertained going up through the China Sea and into um, into Japan. But we changed our minds. Just we were we were really getting tired. I was getting tired because we were constantly sailing, and I mean constantly sailing long distances. You know, like we would sail 10, 11 days and be in one spot for three or four days and then go back and sail for another 10 or 11 days. And it wore the crew out. It was hard on people to, to do that kind of sailing. So Dirk became my only super friend at that point in my life. And it turned out that... Dirk actually became very sick. And he eventually passed away with cancer. We had to sell a boat, but we had all this cash on the boat. And he had written me a letter when he was ill to, uh, to give the money to his two hooker girlfriends. And any other kind of cash that I had laying around, it was, you know, just give it to them. He had been very generous with them, had bought them apartments, bought them cars, anything that they wanted. They were his buddies. We eventually sold the boat. I eventually took the boat up and it was, the ownership changed in Marina del Rey, California, which is, Los Angeles. So I just wanted to say that this was, at the time, the norm. You know, when you're a, a captain, the owner is your best buddy. You're the best buddy of the owner. You keep all his secrets. You're his confidant. And working with Dirk was very nice. I was never treated as an employee. I was, I was always treated as a friend. We both loved the boat. We were both enthusiastic about the boat and sailing. By the way, he did eventually learn how to do everything on the boat and sail. He was a good little mate. He used to call me his mate. Now, of course, things are a little bit different. It's new money. 
even though Dirk's money was new money, but new money has a different connotation. I worked for a family out of Argentina that they were, he was the ambassador to the UN for Argentina. He was the ambassador of Argentina to uh, Spain. Very old money. The worst thing he ever said to me, he always treated us com with complete beauty and dignity. The worst thing he ever said to me that something was unpleasant. If he said it was unpleasant, then I knew there was trouble. So these new types of owners run boats and yachts a lot like they run their businesses. They're detached. This is a unit. This is a business unit. It's used for business sometimes. I work for a guy who owns a very large paint company, one of the largest in the world. And he told me that when business is good, I'll never see him. When business is bad, I'll see him a lot. Well, as it turned out, business was very, very good all the time. And the only time I ever saw him was for corporate meetings, private meetings that we'd have on the boat. Occasionally family vacations, but maybe six weeks out of the year. He was spending close to one and a half million dollars in expenses and uh, per year. And that was, you know, I did not feel close to him at all. Couldn't actually couldn't even stand to be around him, to be honest. A lot of skippers, you know, work for owners that are, you know, pretty well displaced. They're just skippers and they just do their job. There are occasionally owners that, that are kind of fun. But it's nowhere near the fun that it used to be. So that was, that was kind of my first job. I was lucky to kind of catch the tail end of the old-fashioned owner. And the, the bond and the friendship and sharing the love of the boat and the sea and the sailing and having lots of adventures. And of course, I've worked for a lot of uh, very, very wealthy people. Uh, I worked for an Argentinian family that had actually seven boats. I worked for a Finnish family that had four boats, all power boats. The Argentinians had power boats and, uh, and sailboats, racing boats, a lot of racing boats. I worked for a Swiss family that had a beautiful, classic, Hershoff design sailboat that we actually sailed around Italy. The entire boot. So Dirk sounds like a real fun character. You probably don't see a lot of cowboys down at the docks, do you? No, not at all. Not, not, not at all. I mean, sometimes you see, you know, people, but the docks are, there's a, just certain types of people that are around the boats. You know, you can have the yacht clubby types. I've been in the New York City Yacht Club. I've been in the Cleveland Yacht Club. Monaco Yacht Club, you know, coat and tie, blazer, you know, all that kind of stuff. But no, Dirk was a regular working man who happened to get really rich and never forgot about his roots. Well, that's great. And then how did you feel about carrying those big bags of cash on the boat? Well, the, the cash was actually a problem. You know, they would come in those uh, silver hard suitcase 
you know, like a attache. And it, it wouldn't fit anywhere. Um, it wouldn't fit in any of the closets. It was either too wide or too long or too thick or whatever the case may be. I eventually actually kept the all the suitcases under the set T. That's where I kind of kept them. So they wouldn't get wet. I couldn't keep them down in the bilge, obviously. But yeah, yeah that's pretty much where they, they sat. And, and there was no accounting. I mean, I, I actually kept accounting. And, and then I say, well, here's, you know, we spent, you know, we spent $1,000 on fuel. And he'd just be like, I, I don't care. <laughs> you know, it's like, so what? Yeah. <laughs> you could have spent more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Under the settee, there's hatches, which are just uh, cut out um, wood. And, and I had to enlarge those uh, with a saw so that I could get the briefcases inside and they were sitting under there. We also kept liquor under there. So anybody that would find that, they would find both the liquor for the boat, which we had a lot of, and, and, and bags of money. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's great. Awesome. Well, here's to more bags of cash and more liquor, uh, especially in our days of sitting at home. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams with additional music by Tommy Ivisevich. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas. They say that time is like a never-ending battle. Come on, come on, come on, come on. They say that if you're standing still, that time loses value.